Lord, we just ask you to bless this time as we look at the study. We ask that you guide and lead and and just help us to see what you'd have us see from this. In your son's name, amen. All right, Revelation 14, starting at verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood upon Mount Zion, and with him a, a hundred and forty-four thousand, having their his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women for they were virgins these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and unto the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God. So we're going to stop there, verse 5, for a moment. All right, this section we're reading right now is kind of a prophecy inside a prophecy when we get it, because it covers a period of time. So this is a place where they're just throwing in something that is not following chronologically. And there is a school of thought that says that Revelation is not a chronological book, which, and, but if you get into that school, you start getting into symbolism and, and not taking things for what they say. So I'm, I've, I've looked at it. it. It makes some sense, but I'm not sure that I buy, <laughs> buy into it because it start makes, starts making things very difficult to understand and read. And we are in this kind of, remember we had the trumpets about three or four chapters, you know, three chapters ago, and now we've been going into these little vignettes that are, <laughs> that are out there saying, here's, here's just some information. And so we're kind of between chronology. We definitely are between chronology at this, at this point. And it says, he sees the lamb, a lamb that stood on Mount, it says Sion here, which is a Greek, the Greek way to write Zion. And Zion is the same mountain, is, is the same place as Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, Calvary, uh, many different names that this, that that mountain has in the scriptures. And what is special about Mount Moriah? Does anybody remember Mount, what's better, what happened on Mount Moriah? Abraham took Isaac. Took Isaac to be sacrificed, the same place Jesus actually died, Mount Moriah, Calvary, and Jerusalem. <laughs> So we just try to bring that out because we want people to understand when they see these different things, they're all talking about Jerusalem. And when they actually talk about the mountain, they're usually literally talking about Calvary for all practical purposes. So we just want to bring that out for, for understanding. And with him stood 144,000. And we commentators believe that this is the 144,000 Jews that are the witnesses. And it matches because it says they have the Father's name written on their forehead. He marked them, remember, back a while ago, he marked them so that no harm would come to them until the time would be fulfilled. And so that would be in the Father's name that was put on them. And it says he heard a voice from heaven as a voice of many waters and the voice of a great thundering. I don't know if anybody's been someplace where you've had a large, big waterfall or something and the, the noise. The noise. If you go to, if you've ever been to, to Niagara Falls, there's a, it's a thundering noise. Well, not really thunder, but it's a noise, a roaring noise all the time. And they they tell the story about when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineering blocked the river so they could clean, you know, dredge it and everything. 
and the people couldn't sleep for you know for a couple of days because there was no noise that they were used to. Wow. And uh, and I've been there. I've I've lived on the on, right off an of airstrip one time. And when we first moved there, it's like, how are we ever going to be able to sleep here? And after after a couple of weeks, it was like you never even heard the planes flying back and forth. You it really bothered you when they didn't fly, when they were grounded for whatever reason. You know, and all of a sudden it's too quiet. What's going? So they, he hears the voice, that loud rumbling voice, or if you've heard thunder, you know, like you sometimes hearing the uh, being so high where it sounds like it's, you know, going to tear your house apart as your house shakes because it, the peal of thunder has gone right off, right off over it. But the interesting thing I see, and I heard the voice of harpers harping on their harps. He heard some form of music from heaven as well. And this indicates a very joyful music. It's not a mournful, there's a joyful music that he's hearing behind this voice. And, you know, so this is God or, God, or even Jesus speaking, you know, it, it is a loud voice and that's how God's voice is referred to as a thunder, uh, thundering voice out there. And it says they sang a new song, uh, sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four beasts, and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed upon, uh, from the earth. This 144,000 are going to have a song that is their song. This should give us a little bit of remembrance of chapter 5, verse 9, when the elders sang a new song, which was their song. So it appears that God is going to have songs that different groups can sing because of their experience. We as Christians will probably have a song that we sing because of our, the grace shown to us on this earth. The 144,000, they're there by grace, but they've also had to pay a heavy price for being there. Okay, we've seen all the, all the people dying around them and, and, and all that's going on, and they're getting ready to be removed. We're going to have a new, we have different places where we have some real key things that happen. And remember back in, in verse, chapter 5, the, the, the half hour of silence in heaven where I brought out the lamb changes from lamb, <laughs> gentleness to the lion. And there's this whole thing and we're going to see the same thing happening here. The 144 are removed from their direct witness. Israel has fled into the wilderness, into Petra. They're being protected by God supernaturally. 144 witnesses are being removed, and then we're going to end up with the vials, or another huge change in the way God's dealing with the world. So we see these key points in, in Revelation. And that's why we say Revelation is not that hard a book to, to fully understand when you just keep in mind different <laughs> what's happening. Uh, and you look back at Daniel and you get to know Ezekiel. You know, you, you have to go and, and research when you get to these symbols. Like last week we talked about the horns representing powers. How do you know that? You go back to Daniel and you see him saying these horns represent kingdoms and powers. Okay, so the, the symbols have to be understood to, to understand it. But once you start understanding the symbols, everything just kind of falls out into to its place. And so they've got this new song, and it says, They that were redeemed from the earth, and this is the, one, the bought back ones. Always remember, bought, you know, redeemed means you exchange something. You're buying it back. 
Uh, everybody in this room is old enough to remember the S and H stamps, the green stamps, the the plaid stamps. So you know, depending on where in the country you were, each there were different types. But you you gathered these stamps and then you went to the redemption center and you traded this worthless book in for of stamps in for something. <laughs> I used to do. I know. You know, for I for something. And so. And these, the description of these in here in verse 4, these were they which were not defiled with women, for they, the English versions put are, but it should be were, were virgins, they were they that followed the Lamb wherever he went. Okay, so these were ones that did not commit sexual fornication. And you know, this is going to be figure, and you look at this and say, how can that be in this day and age? Because it seems like almost everybody has sexually defiled their body. And that's not everybody we know, but it is becoming more and more. Uh, it's harder and harder to find people that haven't committed adultery and or fornication in their life. There are a handful of them out there, and obviously there's 144,000 of them out there somewhere getting ready to be out there. And there are those that are living according to God's laws, and they're, they're the ones that are picked on and made fun of. We talk about all that, right? Well, we, at various times we've talked about different, it. Different way, but... So, but God says that these individuals were hand-picked, and which, if they can keep themselves pure sexually, it also indicates that they've been keeping themselves pure in all the other areas of their life. It's, uh, if you can stay pure in that area, Stay pretty much pure in just about everything you're doing. If you're going to fall in this area, you're probably going to find yourself lying and stealing and cheating and, and everything else falling apart, trying to hide your activities. So these are very righteous people. And, they, and the, the act that it talks about is their desire to stay away from sexual sin. And in their day, written, it wouldn't have been, it, it would have been, that would have been a big deal because there was sexual immorality in Rome was rampant. And even amongst the Jews, it was getting pretty bad. But, you know, in, over time, that is ebbed and flow. In times we say, oh, we can find millions of people that are sexually pure, and we're in a day and time. It's pretty hard sometimes to find somebody who has stayed sexually pure, not defiled. It's not necessarily in, the, in this original language saying that they had never known, known a woman, uh, but that they had done it correctly. <laughs> they had been pure. Because defiled here literally means committed adultery or fornication. Uh, so in this case, it's not necessarily meaning that they have never married. Uh, the Catholics have used this as one of their verses that says the, that the priest should be, you know, celibate because they've read that R well, when I and decided that they have to be. And uh, so we look at this. So he says, and then we look at this and he says, they that were redeemed from a man among men being the first fruit of unto God and to the Lamb. Okay, and this is talking specifically about the Jews because Christians are really the first fruit to Christ because he died for us and we are the first fruits as he was the first fruit. And we're going to be resurrected, uh, we're going to be raptured and resurrected and out of the picture. And when they put of God, this is going, we're, you've got to remember we've gone back to God dealing as soon as the rapture happens, the church is taken out. Everything is back to being focused on Israel. And Israel, all through the Old Testament, is called God's bride, his wife, his bride. So this is the first fruits to him of his, his possession. Okay? 
And that's why we've got first fruits again in here. Jesus' first fruits is his bride, his church. This is going to be the first fruits of God's God's church. We know that Abraham and Isaac and David and a whole bunch of other people are part of that part of that crowd, but this is these are the ones that are the special redeemed that since Jesus has died pretty much because any Jew before that would have been a what's called a Messianic Jew following Jesus. And they went with the rapture with the church. And always remember that a Jew is not necessarily going to heaven just because he was born a Jew. Okay? They are special. They've got the opportunity to be taught, but they still have to accept Jesus Christ. And so here we are. These are the group that are going to be the first, the first fruit of that. And it says, In their mouth was found no guile, for they are, are without fault before the throne of God. So this is kind of this is their testimony. Not the only other person that I can remember this ever being said about was Daniel. Daniel they could not find fault with. And the people trying to find fault with them were a whole bunch of enemies, you know, political enemies, and if they can't find fault, that's a pretty good life. <laughs> now you're living a pretty good life if your political enemies can't find anything to say bad about you. And Daniel was that type of man, and it says that's the same language they use about these guys. The 144,000 witnesses, and that they are without fault. Now that doesn't mean they're perfect. Just as we know, Daniel wasn't a perfect man. That just what they, you know, the the places where they fail are so small that nobody was going to notice, you know, notice and say, well, we can use this against you. And so we we look at this and say, this these are some special <laughs> special people that are out there. And remember, they, they've the been there for a while now. Didn't they turn, they weren't, Jesus was mad at them too, because they weren't doing right by David, is it? Not the 144,000. No, not the 144,000. The other men. The other men. Daniel, you're talking about Daniel? No. Not sure what uh, what you're referring you to. <laughs> okay, I mean, he's he had problems with the scribes. He had problems with the Pharisees. He had problems with other leaders. But I mean, right now we're in Revelation, and we don't have any of that going on. All right, now we're going to have why we see this kind of as a prophecy within a prophecy. Verse six, and I saw an angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. And to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the water. Okay, so I, this is just amazing to me, the picture, an angel flying around the, around the globe, around the world. It goes to that question of people always ask, you know, well, why can't God use... An angel. Well, he's going to. <laughs> when when he takes all the all the witnesses out, he's going to use an angel to proclaim. And even in this day, he's used visions and dreams and everything else to 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 bring people to him. Many Muslims in this day and age are getting saved through dreams. They're they're truly seeking after God. They're following the wrong way. So he sends them a dream saying, you know, you need to follow me, as he appears to him as Jesus and draws them and the only reason he's doing that is because they are honestly seeking for God 
they're just seeking the wrong way and don't have somebody there to preach to them, so he sends the message. Well, he starts taking out all the witnesses and he's going to send angel. And again, we want to be careful because remember very, at the very beginning of this, this study in Revelation, I've, I made a statement that the way I have been taught to interpret the scriptures is if, it is if it is something that can be true without having to stretch your imagination greatly, it's true. Okay, You don't take it symbolically unless you cannot say that it's true. Here, I do not believe this is a symbol. There are people that will teach, well, this is a symbol of you know, somebody teaching. It's very clear that this is fixing something that can definitely happen. We've, we've, we've read about angels all through the scriptures. So if this is not a true statement, then you're denying the existence of angels. And so, again, if it can be something that we say is obviously that it can be true, then we take it for true. And in this case, we know there's angels. God just decides to let an angel be seen, and the angel preaches. And it'll be a bizarre sight, because angels have never preached, as far as we know, and especially not flying through the air with a loud voice preaching to everybody, you know, going around the world just preaching the, preaching the gospel. And you know, to us, this sounds so bizarre, but yet it is something that's very practical, can be done. You know, we've seen the angels dealing with people all through the scriptures. This will just be a very unusual way that the angel's going to deal with them. And you look at his message, he goes, you know, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of judgment is come. And this one's you know, very specific. It's not, it's near. Yeah. It, it is now. You know, I've taken the last of my people out and it's now time for the, for the world to be judged. And then he goes on and shows him, you know, worship him that made, and he goes into the fact that he's creator. And again, for us in our day and age, we look at this and say, wow, that's quite a message because the majority of the world believes in evolution, and he's gonna come around saying, you know, worship the creator, worship the creator, and which is why, it'll, why, even though it's from an angel, will fall on a lot of deaf ears. Because everything he's saying is contrary to what is generally believed by the world. And it would be a miraculous thing, seeing an angel flying around the world with a loud voice preaching the gospel, yet there's going to be people that are going to reject it. And we can almost picture how that could happen in today. You know, look at what we see on TV and, and the stuff they can project to us on TV and make us think we're seeing. Mm -hmm. People are going to look and say, wow, they're doing some really good, you know, whoever's doing this is doing some really good uh, visual effects. <laughs> Now, we don't know how they're doing it, but they're doing some really good visual effects, and we can see why people will deny this message and not accept it. And uh, so we're looking at this. This is, this is quite an quite a event that's happening. Any comments or questions before we move on to the next angel? There's four of them in a row here. <laughs> and there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Okay, this tells us that it is not necessarily the city of Babylon that they're talking about. Okay, because it said she has made everyone, all nations to drink of her fornication. Okay, so that gives us an indication it's not the current city of Babylon that they're talking about. And one thing you want to understand is in the scriptures, when they refer to Babylon, there are the historical references, but outside of the historical reference of Babylon, they are referring most of the time to the religion that Babylon represents. Okay, 
and you go back into Genesis, Nimrod was the ruler over, over Babylon, and Nimrod put together the basis of all false religions are based in the religion of Babylon. And we, and again, remember we talked about the, the 666 being part of that whole representation of the, the magic square, the perfect square, the magic square of Babylon, Babylonian religion where all, where the sides and the, and the columns that when added up equal 111 and then there's six of them so they equal 666. That's part of the Babylonian Empire uh, religion. They had 36 god, a pantheon of 36 gods that represented just about everything that's represented in scripture when it talks about idols. Uh, the whole thing of, of the Babylonian religion had Nimrod and his, his wife was called the queen of the universe. And we are gonna see the queen of the universe coming up here very soon and being referenced. Uh, she was supposedly had a child as, as a virgin and it wasn't Nimrod being involved in it and he died and was dead for three days. All the stuff about Christianity is wrapped up in the Babylonian religion and butchered and torn apart. <laughs> and one of the things with Christianity, sociologists will look at Christianity and say, well, there's pieces of Christianity in Greek mythology and Roman mythology and the Babylonian religion and these other religions. And Satan is a counterfeiter. He knew that the Messiah was coming. He knew all this stuff about the Messiah and he has duplicated and counterfeited it, except he counterfeited it before it happened because of his unique perspective on time, just as God's. He's not back and forth like God is, but he knew what the future held. He knew what the future was coming, so he put all these lies out there to make it more difficult to understand. If you've ever studied in mythology the, the, the adventures of Hercules, Hercules basically did what Jesus did. He conquered Hades, he conquered, you know, he cleaned, cleaned out all these different things. If you look at his things and you kind of look at Jesus, you see that foreshadowing how Satan tried to duplicate and dilute the picture that was coming. And so this is what he's talking about. Babylon, that religion is fallen. Now we know it hasn't fallen yet. It's going to fall. And this is why I say these are, this is a prophecy within the sitting here in the middle. Because Babylon's going to fall later on in the book of Revelation, actually fall, and the religion is going to fall. But this is what's going to happen. And uh, then there says, uh, is fallen, and all, she has made all the nations to drink of the wrath of her fornication, her lies, her, her false religion. And this is why I say if you ever want to do an interesting study, you can study on the, the, the religion of old ancient Babylon. But again, as my warning always is, if you're going to study that, spend as much time in God's word as you do studying that. Because you need to wash your mind. You know, it's not bad to get in there and understand it a little bit, but make sure you're filling your mind with the truth. Otherwise, you can twist your mind, you know, learning a bunch of faults. Uh, it is very, it's a very interesting thing to learn and see how, see how that has influenced every other religion. It's all about works. It's all about doing good things. It's all about, you know, which is what every religion out there is ultimately about. Uh, every religion out there has the same, same premise. Do more good than bad, and you're going to be, be accepted by whatever deity they, they have. And, or 
clear your mind enough so that you're doing doing good and not bad. I mean, you know, it's all it's all basically the same same premise. And Christianity is the one and only that's different that says God did it. God made us acceptable, and that's why you know when I look at it, that alone is enough proof to me that the that Christianity is the real one. If it was, there was some other one out there that said the same thing, then I'd have some problems. But when they all say do more good than bad, and Christianity is the one and only that says God has to do it, that to me is showing me the, the truth out there. And when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, it is him. Not works, not good, good deeds. Verse 9, and the, th and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive the mark in his forehead or his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receives the mark of his, of his name. So this third beast comes along, the third angel comes along and is declaring a warning. Don't take this mark. Don't worship the beast. Okay. So we have the gospel preached. We have the victory declaration of, that, uh, that uh, Babylon is following. Then we have this warning this warning uh, declaration don't take the don't take this be don't take the mark it says if any man worship the beast in image and receive his mark on his forehead and his and his hand and this is where we learn that the mark is going to be in very prominent easy to to note places and it makes sense if you're going to you know scan your scan your your hand you don't want it to be you know someplace it's hard to get to <laughs> You know, I, I put it on my butt. You know, I have to show my butt every time I want to, you know, no, this is going to be, this is going to be an open declaration that you are de declaring for, the, for your allegiance to the beast. And it says that they shall drink the wine of the wrath of God. And this is a serious thing. They're, this is, as, you know, you take that mark and that's done. You're, 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 you're guilty. And then in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascended forever and ever. Those who want to pretend that, that torment and, and hell is not forever have really not read the scriptures. There's about four places where it very clearly says you will be tormented without end. And then if you didn't believe that, you think it's just the smoke, it says, and they shall have no rest day and night, <laughs> okay, if you worshiped him. And this is where groups will get into trouble because they want to say, well, God's so loving, he would never punish somebody for eternity. Well, he's not punishing them for eternity. They chose to reject him. There, there's nobody that's going to be in hell who, who can say, I did not know, I did not hear, I did not understand. God said, well, show them. You did hear, you did choose not to. Yeah. Some of us in, like in America, we have a very clear gospel message. There's, there is no ambiguity at all in our gospel message. But everybody knows. Everybody knows that they're going against what they should have done and that they need God to get victory over it. And he will show them that they knew. And it is eternal. And this is why it should be something that motivates us to, to give the gospel because if they reject God, they have an you know, eternity future, not eternity past, but eternity.
any future punishment in that to be dealing with. So we want that should motivate us to to the maximum to get out there and share the gospel, especially if we have any family that doesn't know God. We we need to be pressing that say you need to choose God. Make it very clear to them that they're rejecting God if they reject it. And you know the answer the answer always is if somebody says a loving God would never send somebody to hell, God sends nobody to hell. They choose hell. Everybody who's choose you have a choice, everybody will have a choice. Choose God or choose hell. And it's just those two choices. And because they have this, and again, the, why do they believe that God sends them to hell? Because they believe God's putting your good and bad on a scale, and if your scale wasn't quite heavy enough to, to be good, then you were sent to hell. And because of their wrong, that wrong thinking, they believe that God sends people to hell. They've got to be understanding that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and Him only and His grace. And once you go there, it's just a choice. I chose God or I didn't choose God, and, and He gave me what I chose. And if you want to, if they, for, for the world, they're in this idea, well, you know, they just didn't do enough good, so they got sent to hell. No, that's not the case. They chose to go to hell by not choosing God. And so hopefully that helps people as you witness to people and, and, and answer that question. They're getting what they chose. But it all, balance, all balances out to their wrong view anyway. Okay, their view that God is weighing our good and bad because that's wrong, and we've got to get them away from that. And that's why the Romans road is so precious to us. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, sorry, all of us are going the wrong way. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You know, we've earned death, but God's got a gift for us, and all we've got to do is accept it. If people will accept Jesus, Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will end up going to church because they will want to be with others and learning. And so that's the important thing. The message is always you need Jesus. Not you need to go to church, not that you need to no, do we good. We had a conversation with good yeah. 15, 20 minutes. He's a real nice guy. But. Yeah. But there are going to be a lot of nice guys and, and girls in hell. <laughs> and a lot of bad guys and girls in, in heaven. <laughs> because it's all by grace. So we have the four angels, and these are going to, these are going to be those that, you know, and this is, again, because what this little four-angel four vignette is going to be something that covers the whole of the, whole of the uh, rest of the book. So it's not just, this isn't, well, the rest of the book and go, well, hold, how did, how did this happen? Everybody's gone, you know. So we're just going to keep that in, in remembrance there. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus. And this is something that's so precious. Again, he's, he's really good in getting a, a great uh, blessing to these saints. I mean, it says their patience, their steadfastness, their constancy, constancy, they kept the commandments of God and they were an example. Just as we as Christians are supposed to be keeping his word, keeping, you know, doing what he's asked us to do so that we are an example of who Christ is to the world. And nothing is worse than for people to look at Christians and say, well, that's, if that's what the Christians are supposed to be, I don't want anything to do with it. You know, they're just like me. They lie as much as I do. They curse as much as we do. They get angry as just as much as we do. And, and that is the terrible witness. And unfortunately, that is the way a lot of people who claim to be Christians witness the fruit of the Spirit, <laughs> Jesus. 
So, and this is the key that is so important for us to understand is that God is wanting us to live a righteous life, not because it gets us into heaven, not even because it gets us more rewards, which it will if he's working through us, but so that when people look at us, they see Christ. They see the patience of Christ. They see the love of Christ. When If all we're going to do is argue back with them all the time and fight with them all the time, they just see somebody that they look at, them, well, a Christian. I fight and argue all the time. Christians fight and argue all the time. Well, why should I be a Christian? You know, we need to learn to be able to be quiet, let God defend. And that doesn't mean we're going to be totally silent to sin. It means that we're just not going to sit there and argue back and forth. You look at how Jesus dealt with people. He didn't argue with them. He made statements and went on about his business. And sometimes there were hard statements. You know, you whitewashed supplicers. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you vipers. You know, he wasn't very nice to these people sometimes. But he didn't stand there and, and argue with them because I think they didn't sit there and just take that statement and not argue, you know, try to start an argument. He just said what he had to say and he went on about his business to teach. And so we want to be very careful. How do we deal with it? And, you, and most of us shouldn't be talking like Jesus did anyway because he knew their hearts and their attitudes. And, you know, most of the time we're not going to call you whitewashed you know, sepulchers and, and vipers. You know, that's, you know, uh, understand your motives are not good or something along that nature. But we want to be careful. What are we representing to people? Are we living a life that people look at and say, that person's different? And I make a lot of jokes about it a lot, a lot of times during the teaching. You know, we are strange and weird to the people, and we are. We don't act. If we're following God, we don't act the way they expect us to act because we're not following the world. You know, when they do stuff, they're just supposed to be you know, motivated to make us mad and angry and strike back at them, and we don't. They don't understand that. When we love one another as Christians, they don't understand that because they don't truly understand that unconditional love. And we need to be that type of person. The type of person that they look at and say, well, they're not perfect, but boy, are they different. And that is the key for us. And this is the life that these the witnesses lived. Something, you know, obviously they did because they were pure sexually to begin with. And then it said they obeyed the, the commandments. Okay, that is a big deal in this world. When, when the world is saying <coughs> there are no absolutes. And we know what that's like to talk to somebody when they're going, well, that's your truth, that's not my truth. And it's a critical thing for us to understand. We need to be able to deal with that and teach them that there are absolutes whether you believe it or not. And they believe in absolutes too. All the people who tell you they don't believe in absolutes are lying because they do have an absolute standard. And I, and I told you what I've done a couple of times in college. I would talk to somebody and they go, well, that's your truth. I, you know, what's right for you is... is not necessarily right for me. I'm going, do you really don't believe there's any absolutes? And they would go, yeah, I don't believe there's absolutes. And I'd go walk away with their keys. And I'm going, thank you. And they go, well, for what? I go, well, i got to go sell a car in the house. You can't do that. I go, why? Because it's mine. I go, I have no problem selling, selling it. I, if there's no absolutes, I can sell your house with no problem. You know, I go, don't tell me you don't believe in absolutes when you believe it's absolutely wrong for me to take your keys. <laughs> Because I agree with you, it's absolutely wrong for me to take your keys and go sell your stuff. Uh, but all these little points out there, the people who say they don't believe in absolutes know that there are absolutes. They know that it's wrong to lie. 
even if they will use it to their advantage because of, of their situation, you know, trying to convince themselves it's not wrong in, their, in the right situation, they know it's wrong to murder unless they twist everything around to say, you know, it's okay in their situation. But they know that it's a lie as they do it. And so these people are keeping themselves holy and righteous. Verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and from their works that do follow them. This is the idea. This is where, as Christians, we should really get to understand death is a good friend for us. Not that we're going to run out and try to kill ourselves and, 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 and end, but death for the Christian is entering into rest. And we remember Sunday, Sunday we talked about faith rest. This is the ultimate of the faith rest. I die and all my work stops. I, I will learn how to faith rest when I because that is entering into rest. And, he, and this is God saying, you know, it's a good thing. They get to cease from their labors. They get to rest. And in Psalms it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why? Because they've entered into faith rest. They've, they've ended their labors. They've come home. And this is why was, we as Christians should have a totally different attitude toward death. Doesn't mean we're not going to cry at somebody's death that we really love. No, because we're going to miss them. But by the same token, we should be able to say they're at rest. They've, they've, they've reached home. Uh, I loved it back east of the church that I, that, that I went to. They called the, the memorial services homegoing ceremonies. For a Christian, it's a homegoing. They went home. When I was growing up, and I've told you all this you know, many times, I told people, you know, they were trying to get, get me and get me into a fight and go, the worst you can do is almost kill me. You, know, you kill me, I've gone home. That's the best thing you can do for me. You know, almost killing me means I have to suffer. And that just means that I get to suffer for Christ. But in this verse, we see that idea. It's precious. It's precious. They get to go home. They get to rest. They cease from their labors and their works. And, and it says their works do follow them. The rewards, the rewards for what we let God do through us follow us into heaven. And so we look at this, and, and this is the voice of God saying, you know, it's a good thing to die for him. And again, we're not, we have to be careful when we say that because we don't want people going out there and committing suicide so they can die and go to heaven. No. It, but when we die in the natural course of, of events, it's a good thing because we get to go home and spend, that, spend the rest of our life, you know, eternity in rest. And this is just one of the many places where that's brought out in the scriptures. And I've always I told my wife that you know when I die I want them to have a big party. I've gone home. I want to have a I want to have a <laughs> loud a loud praising God celebration party. I don't want to I don't want people to be sad. I want an environment that encourages people to be happy. And I told that to one of my friends, and he goes, I had a friend that had a funeral like that. They had everybody dressed up in Hawaiian shirts and and bright clothes and real upbeat music and. There were a lot of people who just didn't understand that, and I go, I understand that. That's the party. That's what I want. Yeah. 
for, for when I when I when I if I pass away and and we don't get raptured. I want I want a party that says he's gone home, be happy, and leaves people with that attitude of this is a good thing, not a not a thing to be sad and mournful about. So verse fourteen, and I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat. Un like unto the Son of Man, having his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And this kind of takes us back. Now this one takes us back to the rapture and to the 2,000 years between Jesus' coming and the rapture. And if you remember, Jesus told the parable, the fields are ripe. Pray the Lord that he sends in the harvesters. And the picture of the sickle, that final reaping, would be the rapture. He's taken his church out. And we see this, and this is why we know all of this is kind of a, all of this is vision, and it's bouncing back and forth, just like any, if you read any of the prophecy books, you see that same thing where they bounce back and forth in time, and they're very rarely chronological. So for this chapter or two, we're looking at, we're not in a chronology. We're just getting a whole bunch of this, 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 and this. And, and in symbols. And this one, again, we know that it's a symbol because he's sitting on the cloud and he's, you know, reaping in the earth. He's not actually going to take a, a sickle and cross the world, <laughs> cross the world. So, you know, again, when it's obviously a picture, we take that it's a symbol and we look at what it's saying. If it's something that's obvious that it can be true and, and not with no problem, then we go, okay, we take it literally. Uh, and let me see, in, in hermeneutics they said, when the plain sense makes, makes sense, seek no other sense. <laughs> okay, and so if, it, if it's very obvious it's true, don't sit there and try to, can you get a spiritual thing out of it? Yes, but don't try to make that your main point out of that section when you're reading it. Uh, and we want to be careful with that. And he that said on the cloud, uh, verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in the heaven. Okay, so this is the temple in heaven. And we've talked about this. Remember that there is the temple in heaven. And when they created the tabernacle in the temple, Moses was told, be careful you make everything in the pattern you were told and set it up. Why? Because it represented the real heaven and the real mercy seat and the real altar of incense and the real you know uh, table of showbread that is in heaven okay so this angel comes out of the temple of heaven he also having a sharp sickle so now this time it's an angel not just the Lord and and another angel came out over the altar which had power over the fire and cried in a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle saying thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. This picture is the harvesting of the world. When the world gets to its full wickedness, that God is going to say, it's time for their judgment. We're going to, we're going to reap them. We're going to reap that. In the time of Noah, the world was all evil. And it said every imagination of their heart of man was evil. And what did God do? He wiped out the world with the, with the flood. And he said, I'm not going to flood the whole world again. Here we've got the keeper, the angel that keeps the fire, which is judgment. 
And we know that this world will end in fire. So this is the angel holding back that fire until judgment. But another angel comes in and says, the wickedness is full. When the children of Israel came in to conquer Canaan, why did they come in 430 years later? Because God had said, I'm tired of the wickedness of the, of the Canaanites. They've, they have fulfilled their wickedness. They had, they had grown so much that they had to be judged. Sodom and Gomorrah had gotten so bad, so evil, that God said they need to be judged. It's hard to picture how much further our world can go before it has to be judged. Because I can tell you, I know a number of people who seem to have the idea that every imagination of their heart is wickedness. Okay, so we are close to that. We are close to that. And if it, I can't imagine how much worse it's got to get before it gets there. But we are so close, and every one of us know people that are like that probably, or are aware that there are people out there like that. We got people out there blowing themselves up, thinking they're doing good things and killing a lot of innocent people. We've got people who are pushing for laws to say that what they're doing <coughs> is good, you know, because that's what they want. They want to say, well, you know, if I get enough people behind me, then obviously what I'm doing is good. Even though I don't feel good about it, it's still good. And because they said so. There are a few mayor, uh, like New York, was real evil. And this mayor goes in and makes it like Disneyland. Gets rid of all the X-rated places and all the tattoo shops and makes it like a cleaner family-oriented place. Like Las Vegas has become a family-oriented, clean it up. But underneath, it makes it look uh, <coughs> like he's gotten rid of all the... Uh, and there will always be some cleaning things up every once in a while to make it look like you're doing something. But the problem is you've got to get to the heart of the problem. And this is why the first and second Great Awakening in America was such a miraculous thing because it didn't clean cities and towns up by rules and laws and let's put everybody in jail who's violating it was. Christianity swept across these towns and, and these businesses would close either because the owner got saved and closed their business down or so many people got saved that there just wasn't enough to keep the business going. And that is how revival works. Revival can change. And there are those who believe that we're going to have a great big revival before the end times. I don't. Not on, not on a worldwide or national level. I believe that churches in certain areas might have some revivals. But I don't believe that there's going to be a worldwide national revival uh, because I think we're too close to the end. And I don't think it's going to happen. I would love, that would be an area I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to have a great big revival sweep, sweep America and, and become a Christian nation again. I just don't see it happening. And it would be wonderful. It'd be wonderful. I just don't think it's going to happen, unfortunately. So this angel sticks in and he says, the wickedness is complete. And he's going to take the grapes and they're going to put it in a wine press. The angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the, the vine of the earth and cast it into a great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden without the city and blood came out of the wine press, even into the horse's bridle by the space of... 1,600 furlongs. What's a furlong? Well, 1,600 furlongs is just, o literally just over 200 miles. It's 200.0004 miles. 200 miles is close enough to say it's, oh, you know, 1,600, fur uh, 1600 furlongs would be 200 miles. 
This is a picture of Armageddon, which we're going to talk about later on. So when, when God crushes the enemy, and this is where you, when you, you've you ever heard them talk about the blood flowing to the harness of the, the, the bridle of the, the horses in the valley of uh, Armageddon, this is what it's referring to. And that's a lot of blood. Because that's not a very skinny valley at, at that point. And to have probably, you're thinking about six foot deep blood for 200 miles is a lot of blood. Bible note says it's the length of Israel. I thought it was a little North longer South. than 200 miles, but, but it could be right. I, I never really looked at how long, but I thought they were closer to four or 500. But uh, Armageddon, the valley of Armageddon is north of, a little north of Israel. So it's, but it is going to be a good portion of Israel that's covered. And here, most people will try to say that this is figurative because that's a lot of blood, but again, it's very specific. It says 200 miles there, and, and the height of the horse's bridle, uh, there's not much room for figurative language there. Uh, those who say it's figurative means that there's going to be a lot of bloodshed and a lot of, a lot of death, which I can buy that. To have, to have 200 miles of, of blood six foot deep uh, is a lot of bloodshed, a lot of death. So... And there's times when I look at it and say this might be figurative, but it's it's too clear to, you know, this is one where you can picture that it could be there, but that's, and when you figure the army that's going to be marching on them is is over a million strong and they're all going to die, it's you could there's enough blood to probably to fill this fill this valley. Bloodbath. It's going to be yeah, literally a bloodbath in this in this battle. All right. Uh, blood pool. <laughs> We're done for today, so, but again, just know that we're right now we're in this, this area where we're just a little bit outside of the, the chronological, and there's just little, little pictures, little vignettes that he's playing out here between the, between the trumpets and the vials. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to understand what it is that's being said, and to to go forward and we just ask that you go with us today in Jesus' name, amen.